Last episode, we finished exploring the final dimension of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, concentration. Because, however, there really is no end to this path, because it's a cycle that repeats itself, I thought I'd take the space today to take another cycle around this wheel of wisdom, to recap what we learned and hopefully maintain some momentum. Okay, well, first things first, it's important to remember that the Eightfold Path can't be separated from the Four Noble Truths. Because it's the Four Noble Truths that holds the entire intention and motivation underlying the Buddha's philosophy. To understand the nature of suffering in order to bring peace to our hearts and minds. So to quickly recap, the Four Noble Truths are, one, the truth of dis-ease or suffering. Two, the truth of the cause of this dis-ease. Three, the truth of well-being or the cessation of dis-ease. And four, the truth of a path that leads away from dis-ease. The truth of a path that leads to peace and freedom. The Noble Eightfold Path. Again, this isn't a dogmatic prescription or declaration but rather it's an invitation to look into your own heart and mind to discern for yourself whether this path leads onward to peace and freedom or whether it leads to more suffering. Now, at the outset, it's important to keep in mind that the practice and the work we put in is not purely intellectual. It must be absorbed, applied, and embodied again and again. We can't just learn it once and then put it down. So to help us continually navigate the landscapes of our experience with peace of heart and mind, the Buddha created a kind of training program, which he broke into three sections. Training in sila, or moral conduct, training in cognition, and training in understanding. These, as I've said before, are not linear. They're interconnected each of them supporting all the rest, like a wheel with the eight sub-exercises considered as spokes on that wheel, each a necessary component for the wheel to travel smoothly through the magic and mystery of experience. Training in moral conduct, though, the first arena of training, is often considered the bedrock, since it's nearly impossible to develop the other factors without first establishing and expressing a commitment to non-harm. Munindra, a Bengali Buddhist master and one of the most influential Vipassana teachers of the 20th century, said that trying to develop the other factors on the path without first committing yourself to non-harm is like trying to row a boat across the river without untying from the dock. You can put in all the effort you want, but you won't go anywhere without sila. You probably already know this to some extent, You probably know what it feels like to be mentally strained by guilt or remorse. It takes up a lot of space in our minds and can weigh heavy on our hearts. So to clear up space, the Buddha invited us to ground ourselves in a commitment to non-harm and to do this over and over again, understanding our human fallibility. Whenever we lose touch of this intention and hurt someone with our words, or our actions, as we will inevitably do, we can once again make contact with this deep intention within each of us 
that wishes well to life, to people and creatures, and to ourselves. No matter where we are, no matter how lost, we can always find this North Star to guide us back home. Now, of course, this intention of non-harm isn't enough. We also have to put in the effort. We need to practice and develop habits of speech and action that are rooted in Sila. Otherwise, we'll just continue to play out our old conditioned habits. One practice the Buddha suggested, and one I'd like to emphasize again, is to investigate four dimensions of your speech before you open your mouth. Is my speech honest? Is it grounded in love and harmony? Is it skillful, you know, affectionate and timely? And the last one, is it beneficial? Is it uplifting and supportive? Now, though sila is foundational, it's also interconnected with our training and understanding. In fact, our commitment to non-harm is rooted in and grows out of understanding the nature of interdependence and karma, of cause and effect. It strengthens as we understand more clearly that we exist and live in relation to the people and world around us. It flowers when we connect our hearts to thoughts and intentions that are rooted in this understanding. Thoughts of goodwill, love, compassion, renunciation, and generosity. And it seeds when we see the direct impact of these thoughts and intentions, not only on others, but also on our own hearts and minds. Sila is also connected to our training in cognition, because when we're strongly rooted in non-harm, our hearts and minds become peaceful, like an undisturbed pond, which allows us not only to see reflections on the surface more clearly, but also to see into the depths of the water. Sila, as it grows then, brings about the potential for clear comprehension and penetrating wisdom. As I mentioned above, Sila is often expressed as the peace of non-remorse. It allows those around us to live with trust and fearlessness. Just consider how it feels to be around those with an unshakable integrity. You feel warm. You feel safe. You feel at ease. And when we ourselves carry this integrity, when we ourselves are established in goodwill, in non-harm, we too experience this warmth, this safety, this ease in our own being, in our own hearts and minds. So again, Sila sets us up for our training in cognition, since it creates an internal sense of peace, a kind of inner calm and clarity that allows us to cultivate and sharpen our mental faculties, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Only when we establish a sharp mind can we gain the insights and understanding that allow us to navigate life with discerning wisdom. The first of these cognitive faculties, effort or virya, at times is quite difficult, but crucial. It's such a difficult aspect of our training because it's a kind of continuous balancing act where we're prone to fall to either side of the spectrum, lethargy and apathy on one end, and striving or over-efforting on the other. And it's absolutely crucial because it's the fuel necessary to take on any endeavor, 
We can't do anything or move anywhere without it. So don't underestimate this aspect of training. It really is the key to all our aspirations, including our spiritual aim of peace and freedom. Many of us have the intention to improve ourselves or our lives, to cultivate a virtue, to start a business, change a habit, write a book, or whatever. But very few of us will actually put in the work. That's because we haven't cultivated and come to understand this faculty. So again, I invite you to continually be aware of the quality of your effort so you can recalibrate it to match your current circumstances. Are you too tight or too loose? Are you feeling agitated from over-efforting? Is there a sign of struggle, lack, desire, ambition, or judgment? Are you being too self-critical? Are you trapped in the doom of expectation? Do you need to settle back and relax into a more spacious, receptive, and easeful awareness? Do you need to practice some meta or compassion to soften you? Or are you feeling too loose, lazy, timid, or spiritless? Do you need to call in some strength determination, or perseverance? Do you feel stagnant? Do you need to explore your boundaries, play at the edges of your comfort zone to increase the capacity of your experience and bring some energy to the system? Remember, discomfort isn't a bad thing. It's often a signal of growth. We need effort to escape the inertia of our habits. We need courage and strength to expand ourselves. We need energy and perseverance to stick with our aims. We need virya to support us in everything we do. And in the context of the Eightfold Path, we need it most particularly to support us in our cultivation and development of the next cognitive faculty, mindfulness. Mindfulness, if you remember, is a non-conceptual kind of knowing, a non-conceptual kind of investigation and examination, a coming face-to-face with experience. Mindfulness meets experience directly. It holds and embodies the raw data of experience without putting a story to it, without forcing onto experience our preferences, prejudices, and biases. It's an open, clear, relaxed, and receptive knowing. One without struggle. One that accepts and reflects everything as it is, without the need to grasp it or push away from it. Without mindfulness, there is no clear seeing. There's no understanding. There's no penetrating wisdom. Without mindfulness, we see and navigate the world through the delusion of independent self-existence, the delusion of permanence, the delusion of desire, aversion, and ignorance. We put ourselves at the center of existence, isolated from all the rest, seeking that which brings us pleasure and running away from that which brings us pain and discomfort. Our happiness, then, when we're not mindful, 
rests entirely on that which is ultimately unsatisfying, changing, and unstable. Without mindfulness, there is no freedom. So to align our pursuit of freedom with reality, with the truth of the moment's experience, the Buddha invited us to establish ourselves in four foundations of mindfulness, a practice he called the direct path to awakening. As you may remember, these four foundations are one, the body, two, feelings, three, the mind or mind states and emotions, and four, the laws, processes, and ultimate nature of reality. Again, the Buddha, who isn't careless or flippant with his words, called this the direct path to awakening. So it may be something you want to consider establishing as a formal practice. But as a simple way to cultivate mindfulness throughout your day, you can also step back at any time and get a general impression of what's going on in the heart, body, and mind. You can open up to the whole system, the entire energetic field. Listen to experience as if it were the song of the cosmos, the song of being. What's the mood, the energy pattern, the strength and frequency? Note the flavor, note its quality, Again, just get a general, non-conceptual impression. Feel into your being. Feel into existence. How do you know anything at all? Then, after you've stepped back, you can go ahead and open to your perception of the experience. Is there a strong emotion in the heart or a predominant sensation in the body? How are you framing and relating to this experience? Maybe just make a soft mental note, restless, unpleasant. This will allow you to take a deeper look at it, to come in closer to examine the secondary shapes of experience, its uh, component parts. Look closely at each of them. Are there thoughts, words or images in the mind, sensations and feelings, all working together to create the full experience? Where are each of these experienced in the body? What's the interplay among them? Are thoughts and emotions creating any feedback loops? Is this interplay coloring experience with feelings and sensations? Are these feelings and sensations leading to more thoughts? Explore these thoughts. Explore their content, yes, but also explore them as they're directly experienced. Explore them as a phenomenon. What is a thought? What are they made of? Where are thoughts? Where do they come from? And where do they go? Finally, you can look so closely that you come into direct contact with the ever-changing, interconnected, and selfless nature of experience. There is always only awareness and its ever-changing contents arising and fading like waves into the ocean. Become the ocean. 
stay in that easeful, open, and receptive space of knowing. From this place, we also need to remember to clearly comprehend what's going on. We need to know what we're up to, why, and whether our thoughts, words, and actions are skillfully and effectively achieving our aim. One way to do this is to simply ask, is this skillful or not? Beneficial or not? Useful or not? Wholesome or not? This, remember, is the active part of our Vipassana practice. But it's important to remember that it only works when we're mindful. Not seeing through the lens of desire or aversion. Not deluded by ignorance. Without this element of clear comprehension, there's no path to walk. There's only chaos. Without it, there's no understanding. And so we can't discern with wisdom how to navigate our lives. Okay, finally, to really bring our practice to fruition, we need continuity in our practice of mindfulness. We need concentration, an undistracted and undivided steadiness of mind to keep us firmly on our path, to keep us mindfully and clearly comprehending our experience, our actions, and our aims. To support us here, it's important to remember that concentration comes from a calm and relaxed mind, not from a wanting or overstriving mind. This is tricky, no doubt, because typically when we want to concentrate, we often feel like we need to scrunch up our forehead and really hold our attention tightly around the object of our concentration. But concentration actually works the opposite way. It grows strong when we're able to settle back and simply receive the object effortlessly with an open hand and mind. So once again, we see here the importance of applying a balanced effort. The Burmese teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, has a useful trick to keep us open, receptive, and clearly comprehending. He invites us to ask ourselves throughout our formal sitting, as well as throughout our day, What's the attitude in the mind right now? I also like to frame this as, what's the posture in the mind? By this, I mean, are you leaning into or away from experience? Are you expecting something to happen or trying to make something happen? Are you trying to change or control experience in any way? Again, we need to open to and recognize clearly our postures and attitudes toward experience. We need to see our mind states clearly and how they are relating to everything that's happening. And we need to do this not only on our cushion, but throughout our day. This is what will make possible our liberation from suffering. So try out this simple mantra throughout your day and then pay close attention to what happens. See if this helps you to let go of any wanting in the mind. See if it helps to keep you continuously established in your practice of mindfulness. Another helpful mantra I carry that helps me to establish this continuity of practice is the phrase, be simple and easy, which I believe stemmed from Munindra, who I mentioned earlier. But the practice truly is simple. 
It's hard to remember to practice. But again, the practice itself is simple. There's nothing we're really doing. Experience is happening. Can we simply be here for it? Okay, well, that brings us full loop. As we cultivate and balance these three faculties of mind, we will begin to cultivate insights and understanding about ourselves, the world, and our place in it, which will allow us to align our spiritual aim with the Dharma, with the truth of the moment's experience. The stronger our cognitive faculties become, the more clearly we'll be able to see the ever-changing, interconnected, and selfless nature of being. And so the more clearly we'll be able to live in harmony with this truth. The more we embody the understanding of our selfless, interconnected nature, the more we will become living expressions of love.